This is one of the most important questions that you will ever ask yourself. Why is it that out of all the church denominations that there are, you have chosen to be a part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Is there anything different or unique about the Adventist Church? Is it any different from the Baptists or the Uniting Church or the Catholic Church? Is there anything that makes the Adventist Church unique? Well, this is a question we're going to explore for the next few weeks, looking at what makes the Seventh-day Adventist Church completely unique from all other church groups. And this morning, to start this journey, we'll be studying how the Adventist Church came into existence. What is its history? How did it become the church it is today? Because if we really want to find out about the significance of something, it helps to look at its origins, when and where it began. And really, our church history begins 2,000 years ago with Jesus. Just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples to go out into the whole world and make disciples of all nations. And he told them, start in Jerusalem, then go to Judea and Samaria, and eventually go to the whole world. And that's exactly what happened. In the first few centuries after Jesus ascended to heaven, the gospel news spread like fire. It went all across the world. And in fact, uh, most Christian missionaries at the time, because they only knew about this part of the world, they thought that they had evangelized to the entire world. That's all they knew. And that's how successful the Christian message was, that these people honestly thought to themselves that they had gotten to every single person on the planet with this message. So the church was very, very effective. But then something big changed all of that. The Roman Empire, it was the biggest empire in the world at the time. It ruled basically all of the then known world. And the Roman Empire suddenly collapsed. Now in the wake of this collapse, there was no political authority. There was no government because this the, the nation of Rome that had oversaw all of these different countries and territories had now collapsed. So someone had to take this new spot. Who was going to be the new political authority? If it wasn't going to be Rome, who would it be? Well, this is when the church that was established in Rome thought that they would step up to the occasion. And so the church in Rome decided not just to become a religious authority, but also a political authority. And this is where we see the birth of really the Roman Catholic Church as we know it. Now the problem with having one body be both a religious and political authority is that that's a lot of power in one person's hands. And in fact it was too much power. And very quickly the Christian church became very corrupt. It, uh, the, church, the church ruling through the medieval period or the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages whichever term we use, was very, very corrupt. And it sought to be really a dictator over doctrine. Bibles were not given to ordinary people in their own languages. And the purpose behind that was to restrict the people from reading the Bible for themselves. Because if they could read the Bible for themselves, they could see that what the church was teaching was in fact wrong. 
And the church just made up all of these doctrines that weren't even in the Bible. And when anyone questioned them, they would say, you're wrong, we're right, because we are the authority. And you couldn't even fact check them because you couldn't even read your Bible. You probably wouldn't have even had a Bible. And so it was in this context that another big shift happens in church history. Martin Luther, he begins to have some issues with how the medieval church is running things. In particular, he's frustrated by the fact that the church is teaching you can get salvation by working hard enough. So, for example, the medieval church said that if uh, you looked at certain relics, then you could get some years off your time in purgatory. Or they'd say, uh, if you climb this set of stairs on your knees and at each step you say a certain prayer, you can get a few years off your time in hell. And they had all of these weird and strange ways of trying to get people to buy their way to heaven. That was another way. You could just go to your local church, give them some money, and they would give you a bit of paper telling you how many years out of purgatory you'd saved yourself. And Martin Luther looked at this and he thought to himself, this isn't what the Bible teaches. You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't pray your way into heaven by going up steps. You can't look at something and get into heaven. Salvation only comes through faith in what Jesus did. It's faith through grace. And so in the year 1517, he did something dramatic. And we have a photo of it here. He decided that he would write down 95 problems he had with the church at the time. And not only did he write these problems, he went to the biggest church in the town he lived in, and he nailed them all onto the doors of the church. And this protesting, Martin Luther's protesting, started what became known as the Protestant Reformation. This was a group of people who were now protesting against this corrupt and evil church. They were saying, we want to read the Bible for ourselves, and we want to determine what the Bible says for ourselves. And of course, Martin Luther, he would go on to create the Lutheran Denomination. So he's really the first guy to ever make a denomination in this protest against the church. And then after him, many others followed. For example, uh, the Baptists. The Baptists, they discovered something that the church had long forgotten, that baptism was only to be by full immersion, an adult believer by full immersion. So the Baptists, in their studying of the scripture, they uncovered some truth that had been forgotten. And the same was true for other denominations that came from that, the Presbyterians, the Methodists. As all of these people began to study the Bible for themselves, they each began to find, to find these truths that had been forgotten or truths that had been suppressed by the medieval church. And so we have all of these different denominations discovering and finding new things in the Bible. And it leads us all the way up to the Adventist church. This is really the long history that the Adventist church finds itself in. We pick up after this Protestant Reformation. After all these other denominations, they've done their time searching the scripture, finding these truths. The Adventist church comes a bit later. And in fact, we build on a lot of the things that came before us. We have uh, that benefit of standing on the shoulders of those who came before. Now, what's incredibly fascinating is that God actually predicted every single piece of this history. 
God in the book of Revelation said that the church would initially be prosperous and go everywhere. And then God predicted that the church would eventually become corrupt and wicked. But that there were true believers even still that he would protect. And then that that wicked church would eventually collapse and God would bring about new light to his people. So all of these events God actually predicted, these, the, this history of his church. And now comes the fascinating part, which is that the Seventh-day Adventist church is the only church to specifically be mentioned in biblical prophecy. We have the early church talked about. We have the, the medieval church But after that, this is the only church that God specifically prophesies about. Let's read this in Revelation chapter 10. And we're going to see God specifically identify the Seventh-day Adventist church. Now, Revelation 10, we're reading midway through what we might call a prophetic timeline. So Revelation chapter 8 and 9, it's giving us these events that go from the birth of Jesus through to, well, the Adventist church. And chapters 8 and 9 take place after, well, one is before and one is after the Protestant Reformation. So Revelation 10 is set after the Protestant Reformation. It's set after Martin Luther. And let's begin to read about what God says is going to happen with his church after the Protestant Reformation takes place. Revelation chapter 10 says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had a little book or a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars, when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Well, we've got a lot to unpack in just those first three uh, verses, don't we? Let's begin with the description of the angel that John is seeing here. So John, he's in a vision. God's showing him a vision of the the history of the church. And here he says an angel comes down to him. And this angel is clothed with a cloud. He has a rainbow on his head. His face is like the sun. And his feet are like pillars of fire. Now these are all descriptors of who, what God looks like. Around God's throne there is a rainbow. God has, uh, his face is bright like the sun. Um, His feet like pillars of fire. That matches the description of Jesus in Revelation 1. But it says it's a mighty angel, and later we'll see that the angel uh, ascribes worship to God. So although the qualities are similar to God, this isn't a representation of God, but this angel clearly speaks on behalf of God. He speaks with authority given to him from God. The descriptions are so close that we may as well be hearing from the very voice of God. And in fact, verse 3 indicates that to us. It says, when the angel speaks, there are seven thunders uttered in his voice. And that's again language used for when God speaks. At Mount Sinai, when God spoke to his people, they said it was like thunder. So this, this angel is speaking with the authority of God. 
God has given this angel to speak on his behalf. And it, in fact, their descriptions are so similar, it's difficult to tell them apart, it seems. So this angel means business. He, he speaks on behalf of God. And it says that he has a little book or a little scroll in his hand. And he sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Well, when talking about the sea and the land, it's giving us this idea that this is a global thing across all sea and across all land. This angel, he is in his hand. This little scroll is a message that is meant for the entire world. It is a global message. Whatever is written in this scroll, it's that important that the John is trying to tell us he's got his feet on the land and the sea. This is, this is across the whole world. So John, he sees an angel that speaks on behalf of God, has the authority of God, and he bears with him on a little scroll something that is meant for the entire world to discover. So what is that message? Let's find out. Let's go read verses 4 through 7. It says, Now when the seven thunders uttered their uh, voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be no time any longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Again, that's a lot to unpack in the just four verses there. So let's take it verse by verse slowly. What does God say through the seven thunders? When the seven thunders echo, what do they say? We don't know. Because John's told not to write it down. Now clearly the scroll already has something written in it. And John's going to add something to this scroll. But God tells him, don't write it down. God just tells him, keep what's already written in the scroll. Leave it like that. Don't write anything additional to this scroll. Don't write down what the seven thunders were. So, unfortunately, we don't really know what the seven thunders uh, were saying. But perhaps God didn't mean for us to know. That's something we might have to ask him when we arrive in heaven. But interestingly, God doesn't just tell him not to write down what the seven thunders spoke. He tells him to seal up the scroll and what is written in it. And the reason he gives is that's meant for a later time. Seal up the things which the, which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. So there's this scroll that's sealed, but it's not meant for John right now. It's meant for a later time. So then this angel, he, he does something interesting. He swears basically on God. And what does he swear? That there will be no more time. Now, some of your Bibles might say delay, but the word there is chronos, which is time. So some, some translators have taken that to, me, this, to mean there's no delay in time. And that is an accurate way of saying it. The angel is saying that there's time's running out. Like he's trying to indicate that the soon coming of Jesus is around the corner. There's going to be no more time. That God's just around the corner. But John is also referring to prophetic time. 
here. We're in a, a prophetic vision. And John here is referring also to prophetic time. Now, what do we mean by prophetic time? Well, in the Bible, there are time prophecies given. For example, in Daniel and Revelation, we read about prophecies that last for 1,260 days. So that's a specific prophecy about a specific time. And in fact, the longest time prophecy there is in the Bible is called the 2,300-day prophecy. And it spans over the course of actually 2,300 years. And when we look at when the prophecy begins and ends, it's the very last prophecy to be fulfilled. Now, I should say, very last time prophecy to be fulfilled. Around us today, we see prophecy being fulfilled but they're not prophecies that have a specific beginning and end date. So here, when John is referring to prophetic time, there should be no more prophetic time any longer. It means that there is, there's a conclusive end to this, these prophetic time periods. Whatever the scroll has to do with, it has to do with something about the longest and the final prophetic time period and in the days of the sounding the mystery of God will be finished so this scroll it's we still don't know quite what it is but what we do know is it has something to do with an end time message we're told that there will be no time any longer Jesus is coming soon so whatever is written in this scroll it has to do with the second coming of Jesus And the other thing we know is that it has to do with prophetic time and specifically the longest and the final time prophecy that the Bible gives us. There's going to be an end to prophetic time. This is the last fulfillment of a time prophecy. So we're looking for something in church history where God brought about a message about the end, the second coming and the end of or the fulfillment of the longest time prophecy the 2300 days so there we go the stage is set we know what to look out for now we know we're looking for something about the end times and prophetic time after the protestant reformation and this is where we begin to enter into where the adventist message begins it begins with a man by the name of william miller And Miller lived in the early 1800s in America. He was a man of faith, and he was dedicated to discovering the truth about biblical prophecy. And in particular, he was studying a very special prophecy in the book of Daniel. And that prophecy was the 2,300-day prophecy, the longest and the last time prophecy in the Bible, the one that is alluded to here in Revelation 10. And we're going to play a video for you to illustrate um, what William Miller discovered as he studied the longest time prophecy in the Bible. So as William Miller studied the longest time prophecy in the Bible, he concluded that Jesus was going to return in the year 1843. He, He calculated the right dates. Well, eventually he... And eventually he realized he was off by one year. And so the year was 1844. And the date was going to be October 22nd. 
And he believed he'd studied intensely this prophecy, the prophecy that Revelation 10 alludes to here. And he believed in, with all of his heart that God was going to return in 1844. The only problem was it was too big of a burden for him to bear. He didn't like the responsibility of knowing when Jesus was going to return. So William Miller made a deal with God. He said, God, I will not go out and preach this message unless you give me the opportunity to do so. I'm not going to go out and look for it. But if something comes my way, I'll go and preach it. Well, within about an hour, William Miller gets a knock on his door. Who do you think it is? It's someone asking him, can you come preach at our church this week? And William Miller, he ran into the forest and he... he he was so um, annoyed and uh, upset with God. But eventually, after pouring out his heart to God, he said, God, I'll do as I said. I said, if you give me the opportunity, I'll preach this message. And he did. And people were blown away by the idea that God was returning in 1844. And eventually more people came and asked him to speak at their churches. And he continued to spread this message. And eventually, this message became so popular that William Miller was preaching to about 10,000 people and he preached over 6,000 times in these four years leading up to 1844. 6,000 times and some of these crowds had 10,000 people in them and there's an illustration of that as well. And it's interesting, some people think oh, maybe Miller was making a bit of money from all this preaching. Well, he did make a bit of money. In 1837, he was given $1 to travel to Canada. And that's the only money he ever received by all of his preaching. This was a very expensive endeavor for him. He was making no profit from any of this. And what was so interesting is that there was no one church caught up in this, what became known as the Millerite movement. It was named after William Miller. The Baptists were involved in this. The Presbyterians, the Methodists. Every church denomination in America was getting involved in the Millerite movement. Even the Catholics. All of these churches believed that God was going to return in the year 1844. And in fact, these people were so dedicated to this idea that some of them sold their houses, some of them sold their fields, some sold their possessions... Those who were farmers, they didn't sow any seeds for next year's harvest because they wanted to show faith that, well, why sow another harvest when God is coming back before we're going to need it? And these people, they were mocked, they were ridiculed, all because they believed in their heart of hearts that God was returning in the year 1844. So, October 22nd, so what happened on October 22nd, 1844? Well, Jesus didn't arrive. They had believed with all of their heart and soul that Jesus was going to take them to heaven that very day. They waited all day. They waited up till midnight. And as we saw, they waited. They heard all the, the midnight clock hit 12 times. And Jesus didn't come. Now, if we put ourselves in their shoes... Imagine the level of sadness and grief and despair they would have felt. 
and you know, putting aside the fact that they'd sold everything and putting aside all of that, for the Christian, Jesus is the person that they love the most. And they thought they were going to see him, the one that the Christian loves. And then he didn't arrive as expected. Here's a quote on the screen from someone who was there that night. He says, It is a cloudy and dark day here. The sheep, that is the people. The sheep are scattered and the Lord has not yet come. Right? should be October 23rd, just the morning after. God had not come as they expected. And history now refers to this event as the great disappointment. Because what greater disappointment could these people experience than believing God was going to return and giving up their entire lives for this belief and then having it ripped out away from them? Well, after this great disappointment, the people didn't just fold their their hands and that was the end of it. They began to search the Bible more intensely than perhaps anyone ever had, even during the Protestant Reformation. Because they'd experienced such bitterness, they wanted to find hope again. And think about that. When you put something bitter into your mouth, what do you immediately want to do? Get rid of that flavor. Put something sweet in there. We want to get rid of the bitterness, replace it with something sweet. And these people had experienced a bitterness in their mouth more than perhaps anyone had ever had. Well, that's right. We'll get there. And they wanted wanted so deeply to find some sweet gospel truth in the Bible. And now let's conclude reading Revelation 10. We're going to see the final fulfillment of this. We said Revelation 10, the little scroll is a message of the end times. And it's a message of the last time prophecy. The very one that these people believe. And we're going to see what the end result of this little scroll is. This message that was given. Verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little scroll which is open in the hand of the angel, who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. The angel said to me, Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. What was the result of the message written in this scroll? When it first entered the mouth, it was beautiful, it was sweet. And that's exactly what the Millerite message was. Jesus is coming again. The last time prophecy is going to be fulfilled. We are going to see Jesus in 1844. That is the sweetest possible message that these people could have heard. So when it was in their mouth, when they were first experiencing it, it was beautiful. It was sweet. But then October 23 comes and that very message becomes bitter it is the the worst possible news that they could have experienced 
And that's exactly what the John is trying to reveal to us here in this book. This is a clear, clear source or clear origin of the Adventist church here described in the pages of Revelation. That there would be, after the Protestant Reformation, a, a message of the end time and of prophetic time that would be so sweet in the mouth of God's people. And then it would become the most bitter possible thing they could imagine. Now, as we said, when they experienced that bitterness, what did they seek out? Sweetness. They wanted something. They searched their Bibles to find some sweet, some good news, something to get rid of that bitterness. And they succeeded. As they studied the Bible, they uncovered, just like the other denominations before them, that gradually uncovered these truths long forgotten, the Adventist church, or the Millerites, at the time there were still Millerites, the Millerites began to study the scriptures. And here are the doctrines or the beliefs that they uncovered. The spirit of prophecy, the remnant church, the second coming, the Sabbath, the state of the dead, the truth about hell, Stewardship, the health message, the sanctuary, and the cosmic conflict. Now that's a lot of distinct doctrines that these people found. These are truths that had long been forgotten but were buried in the Bible. And in fact, these are just a few. We could mention a lot more, but these are the core, the main ones that these Millerites discovered. And eventually, as these Millerites uncovered all of these beliefs and doctrines, it was then that they decided to establish the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So, we come back to our question from before. Uh, before we do, let's just look, read the final verse uh, of chapter 10, Revelation 11. We have the, the sweet to bitter experience, and then what happens? The angel said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So right after that bitter experience, the angel tells John, go out and preach. Go out and prophesy. That's exactly what the Adventist church did. After that bitter experience, they found that truth. They found that sweetness. And they then began to spread it across the world, just as the angel here describes. So we come back to our original question at the beginning of this. Why am I a Seventh-day Adventist? Well, as we've seen, God, he has been working through his church throughout all of history. And he's guided it from when it began. He took care of his true church when the medieval church was being corrupt. He helped pave the way for the Protestant Reformation. And he did help the other Protestant denominations to discover truths as they intensely studied the scripture. But all of this church history finds its culmination point in Revelation 10, with the birth of God's church specifically intended for the end time, specifically intended as a prophetic movement, just as the angel says to John, prophesy, prophesy about that experience. As I said earlier, God, you know, 
God doesn't ever in his revelations specifically refer to any church. The early church was um, just the one Christian church. And then we have the medieval church. But after that, God never refers to a specific church in the Bible except for the Seventh-day Adventist church. And what is God trying to imply by that? Well, it seems to me that the Seventh-day Adventist church has a unique role. That all of these other churches paved the way for God to create this end-time prophetic movement. And so my question to you is, if God uniquely moved the Adventist church in this way, if he prophesied about it in his word, if he created, he was the source, the origin of this church, why wouldn't we want to be a part of it? I, I read that and that excites me. I look at these doctrines and they excite me. I, I think to myself, I want to know what all of those are. My curiosity, you know, gets stirred up within me. I want to know what, you know, the truth about hell is. I want to know about uh, what God has to say on health. I want to know all of these questions. And so perhaps, like me, you're thinking the same. Wow, I'd really like to learn more about what is unique and special about the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And so this morning, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. I'm going to pass around. I'll give it to one of you, and if you can pass these around. Just a small card and uh, a pack of pens. Uh, Take one card and take one pen, and then I'll explain to you what they are. Uh, as they go around. There are three questions. Not too, not too hard, pretty simple. Three questions. The first being, I want to know more about why God started the Adventist movement. And you'll see there's a little box there, and it gives you the option to tick that box if you would like that. If you tick that box, um, write your name down, and if you tick that box... I'll ring you up and, you know, I'll say, hey, let's, you know, let's spend some time. Let's, let's help, you know, let's figure out together why did God start the Seventh-day Adventist movement? And we'll talk, discuss what it is you'd like to learn and uh, work our way there. The second question reads as the following. I would like to learn more about this topic through Bible studies. Maybe you want to know more about the book of Revelation. Maybe you'd like to know a bit more about the chapters before and after Revelation 10. Or maybe you'd like to, as we said earlier, talk about, well, what did God have to say about the early church or the church during the Middle Ages in biblical prophecy? What what does God have to say about that? Or maybe you'd just like to know about the unique Adventist doctrines that God has given to this church. Whatever it might be, if you can think of anything that you'd like to learn more about in depth, and you want me to follow up with you so we can study it together, make sure to tick that box. What if you want to tick three? You can tick all three of them. There's no limit to how many boxes you can tick. And the final question is, I would like prayer for. Now, I apologize, the space to write that's a little bit small. But um, I want to take the opportunity as well to hear from you if there is something that you would like something prayed for. And uh, what I'll do is I'll collect all of these cards... And if you've written down something, uh, I'll add that to my things to pray for during the week, and I'll make sure to keep that um, on my prayer list, make sure to pray for you uh, in that area. So 
Take some time, think about it. How, what do you want to know? And um, tick the boxes if you are dedicated to taking time out to learn it. Um, not just a mere curiosity, that's a good place to start, but tick the box if you want you know, me to follow up with you and we can sit down, have a chat, have a cuppa, and talk more about this um, topic. Look, when you've filled out your cards, just place them in uh, the little uh, drawer thing or whatever it is in front of you, and uh, I'll make sure to collect those at the end. And I'm really looking forward to continuing this journey with you, discovering more about the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Well, as I said, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at that long list. If we could go back to that list uh, of doctrines, we're going to be looking at each of these topics one by one to discover what, what does God have to say about these topics. You know, we're going to be looking at the idea of hell. The idea that we have of hell, is that really the right view? We're going to be uncovering this cosmic spiritual battle that rages all over our planet. You might be thinking, didn't the 2,300-day prophecy say that the sanctuary will be cleansed? If nothing happened in 1844, what really happened? Well, that's what the sanctuary will help us explain. When we get to that topic, we'll actually find out what was supposed to happen on 1844. And all of these topics we're going to look at one by one and see not only how they are unique to our church and how they're unique to our mission, but also how we can apply them to our lives and what a big difference they make in our lives uh, when we believe them. Let's uh, finish with a word of prayer and then um, we'll head out to lunch together. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that here in Revelation, we can read about you bringing up this church. What a privilege and a blessing it is to be a part of a church that your very hand guided and formed and molded. A church that you have brought up to prepare the world for your soon return. God, we just pray that um, you would help give us uh, an understanding of what a privilege that is. God, I also want to pray for all of the decisions made on these cards. I pray that you be with each one of us here. And as we continue our Sabbath, uh, enjoying fellowship with each other, that your presence would be with each one of us. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Amen.